Well, good morning to everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, as I've already mentioned, I've been completely off this week, so bear with me. Uh, we do have a great passage, though. I've been just sitting at home, kind of noodling on this passage all week, and it's been uh, a lot of fun. Uh, today's passage is, is it's all about worship, and I'm, I kind of nerd out on stuff, and so I was kind of curious, I was like, where did the word worship come from? Because it doesn't sound like any of the Greek terms for worship in the New Testament. And so I went on, I looked at the etymology of the word worship, where it comes from. And worship actually, it comes from the combination of an old English word for worth and an old English suffix, which we say in modern English as ship, like friendship or apprenticeship, right? So worth combined with ship, which means state, condition, or quality of something, a state of being something. So the original Old English term meant something like worthiness or an acknowledgement of worth. That was worth-ship, where we get worship. And as I was thinking about that in terms of our, our humanness, part of the problem with our fallen condition as humans, ever since the fall... We have struggled with this tendency to assign worth to ultimately worthless things. Now, I don't mean everything that's worthless is bad, and we're going to see that as we go along, but we ascribe worth, eternal, infinite, ultimate worth to things that will prove unworthy over time. And that's part of our fallen condition. And this is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about idolatry. That word idolatry or idol worship is exactly what this is. It's the worship of ultimately worthless idols. Back in those days, they were carved out of wood or stone. These days, they look a little different. We're going to talk about that too. But it's the worship of worthless idols which can never provide what we want them to. They will never fulfill us in the way that we expect them to. And so it's foolish to worship them. And the the wisdom literature in the Old Testament makes that abundantly clear. So today's big idea from this passage in Acts is that God alone is worthy. So he alone should be worshipped. He alone should be ascribed such worth. And false worship is what happens when we worship anything in place of the one true living God. If we put anything in his place as the object of our worship, that is by definition false worship. And so today's passage gives us a glimpse into the nature of false worship, and it also gives us a glimpse into the character or characteristics of false worshipers. So in the first part of our passage, we see the nature of false worship. False worship responds to perceived power. In our passage, the, uh, the rural pagans in Lystra... They perceive divine power in their midst, but they fail to attribute that power to the one true God. They sense it, just like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, people say. I've not been there yet. But they say you just feel this sense of majesty and awe. And in the same way, they were experiencing divine power in their midst, and and yet they weren't willing to attribute that power to the one true God. So look at how they respond to Paul's first public miracle. Now, he, he blinded the magician on uh, the island of Cyprus, but that was more of a private interaction, it seems. So his first public miracle we see in this passage. So look with me at verses 8 through 13. 
It says, In Lystra, a man was sitting whose feet were incapacitated. He had been disabled from his mother's womb and had never walked. So right here we're seeing that Luke is drawing connections between the ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Peter, the apostle to the Jews, and now we see uh, these connections drawn to the ministry of Paul, the apostle, ultimately to the Gentiles primarily. So here's this guy who's never walked since he was born. And this man was listening to Paul as he spoke. We know what Paul was talking about because it told us in the last passage. He's there preaching the word. He's preaching the gospel. He's sharing Christ with these people. And so this man was listening to Paul as he spoke. And Paul looked at him intently and saw that he had faith to be made well. Sorry, I forgot to take this off. And he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. Hermes was the god of oration and persuasion and public speaking. Uh, He invented language, in fact, according to Greek mythology. So they call Paul Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. And moreover, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So I love archaeology. I love reading about it. But but modern archaeologists have proven that Lystra which is right on the, uh, in Anatolia, in modern-day Turkey, um, uh, just north of the Mediterranean coast. Uh, they have discovered in, in the area around uh, ancient Lystra these, these uh, inscriptions to Zeus and Hermes. So we know that, that the worship of Zeus and Hermes was prolific in this area. And in Paul's day... There was, if you've ever read Ovid's Metamorphosis, it's a collection of some of this Roman poet's works. So he published that about 40 years before Paul got to Lystra. And uh, in that uh, work by Ovid, there's a, uh, it looks like a traditional myth or a fable that Ovid picks up, but it's about um, the two gods in question here, Zeus and Hermes, disguising themselves as human beggars and going to the area around Lystra and basically asking people for shelter, and they get denied by all the people. Everyone just shuts the door in their face until finally they get to this old peasant couple's cottage, and the peasant couple gives them their own food, their own bread, a place to stay, and shows them incredible hospitality. And then, of course, the gods reveal themselves, and they say, you guys better get up to high ground because we're about to judge all your inhospitable neighbors. And they wiped out all those people with a flood. And then they turned the peasant's little poor cottage into a massive temple with a gilded roof and stuff. So this is a popular myth that's going around. It was published 40 years before Paul gets to Lystra, to the same area. So when Paul miraculously heals this paralyzed man, the the pagans there, these rural pagans, and pagan is, originally it meant rural to the Romans, but it was basically like kind of traditional religion in the Greco-Roman period, okay? So these rural pagans, they see him do this miraculous thing and heal this paralyzed man, and so they naturally identify these two Christian apostles with the two Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. And, and so they, they, I want to give them credit in the sense that they rightly perceived that divine power was present. They didn't just shut their eyes to this, this reality that divine power was there, 
but they wrongly attributed that power to mere mortals who they wrongly assumed to be gods or divine beings. And if you know anything about Hermes and Zeus, you know that they are not honorable characters. They are not worthy of the worship that God deserves. And so they used this display of God's power as a reason or an excuse to worship their own false gods with their own forms of worship, these pagan sacrifices at the, at the temple of Zeus. And they, they, they did well to acknowledge the power of God, but they ultimately fall short of giving God the glory. So this is not true worship, even though it is a response to perceived power and the provision that power can bring. So true worship recognizes God as the source of all power. And this is what Paul is trying to explain in this, which happens to be his very first speech in the book of Acts, to a completely Gentile audience. There, were, there wasn't a synagogue here. There wasn't a, a crowd of Jews here. Um, we know Timothy had a Jewish mother. They lived here. But, but for the most part, he's talking to Gentiles. And so it's his first speech to this completely Gentile audience. And it's neat to see how he speaks differently about God in preparing their hearts to hear about Christ. So look at how he begins this speech in verses 14 through 17, before his speech gets cut short, it's seemingly. It says in verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard about it, so these guys are speaking Lyconian, they don't know what's going on, and then all of a sudden, here's this priest showing up with these oxen with garlands around their neck and a big knife, you know, and all of a sudden they put it together and like, what, you, you're, what, what? You're, you're trying to sacrifice to us? And so they, when they heard about it, they tore their robes, which was a traditional sign of uh, immense distress or that a blasphemy had just occurred against God. So they tear their robes and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, preaching the gospel to you, the good news to you, to turn from these useless things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who formed it all and filled it all with the creatures and everything in them. And then in verse 16, he says this, In past generations, he permitted all the nations, all these Gentiles, to go their own ways. In other words, God wasn't involved in the nations as he was in the nation of Israel, in Abraham's descendants. And so they kind of were were going their own ways, uh, so to speak. And, and it says this in verse 17, he says, yet he did not leave himself without witness or without a testimony. And how was that? In that he did good and gave you rains. So all the nations, all the people who have ever existed have benefited from the rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, Paul says. And if you want to see how the rest of the speech would have gone if he hadn't been interrupted, you can go to Acts 17, where he's talking to the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. And he takes this same concept of God and kind of expands it, eventually gets to Jesus and uh, the personal work of Christ. So these pagan Gentiles, they were polytheists, okay? They believed in lots of different gods, all right? And if you know anything about Greek mythology or Roman mythology, you know that that they were polytheistic. So instead of beginning with the Son of God who actually did come to earth as a man, Jesus Christ, Paul instead begins by introducing them to the one true living God. And that's going to be foundational for their understanding of the personal work of Christ. 
So Paul explains that God was the omnipotent, all-powerful creator of everything. That's how he introduces the living God to these people. And he was also the benevolent sustainer of life in all things. And so his power, God's power, is behind the rainfall from heaven and the seasons and the harvest and the fruitfulness of the crops that can be grown and enjoyed. His power is behind those things. And these are gifts that are given to bring satisfaction and gladness to people, to evoke gratitude in our hearts toward God. We're meant to receive all these good things. And we know uh, in James, it talks about every good thing comes down from from the Father. Everything good comes from God. And so it, it should evoke a sense of gratitude, a sense of thankfulness. That's his point. God's goodness has always been evident in creation, in nature. That's what we call general revelation. That's what we call, uh, uh, what Paul talks about Romans 1 is leaving us without excuse because we have this general knowledge of God. We see his power and his wisdom in nature and we receive his good gifts and we ought to be grateful. So we have no excuse for not worshiping as we, as we ought to. Folks, God created us for worship. This is something that you just, if you miss this, you're just going to miss so much. Same with me. If I miss this, if I forget this, I'm going to miss so much. And it's, my spiritual growth is going to flatten out and stagnate or retrograde. Uh, here's, here's why this is important. God created us for worship. Now, he created us to do other things as well. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. But, but one of the main things we do as creatures is, is worship our creator. And, and, and and he gives us a unique capacity as human beings to, to understand the creator and, and creation and the difference between the creator and his creation. And he gives us a unique capacity as human beings to worship him. Animals cannot worship him in the way that we can worship God. This true worship of the living God. And if we're not worshiping God because we were created to worship If we're not worshiping God, then we're going to worship something else. And when we do that, that amounts to false worship. It gets back to what we were saying at the very beginning. And it's funny, as I was thinking about illustrations about this, I I had to remove the Apple News app from my phone because I doom scroll. uh, And that's not good right before bed to just doom scroll through all the horrible things happening in the world, okay? But I do sometimes go on to Google News, but I go right to the science page. I love the science articles in Google News. Um, rarely is it just overwhelmingly depressing. Well, in a long-term sense, it's usually overwhelmingly depressing about the end of the universe and such, but, and giant asteroids taking us out and the sun dying and all these things. But in the short term, there's really cool things being discovered and happening, and I love to hear the scientists talk about it. So ironically, atheistic scientists, not all scientists are atheists, and it was theistic scientists that laid the foundation for the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th centuries, but... There are a lot of atheistic scientists around today that are writing articles and being quoted in articles. And you know what? They're some of the most worshipful people in the world. I love listening to them. I love reading what they say because their brilliant minds give them this incredible capacity to to understand the beauty and complexity of nature in a way my mind is not able to grasp. And so I like hearing them talk about the beauty and complexity of nature, but, but their atheism leaves them without a God to give the glory to, without a creator to give the glory and the gratitude to. 
And so it always kind of falls off, right? And so what do you do when you've got this sense of awe and you're inspired and overwhelmed by the beauty and complexity and amazingness, awesomeness of, of creation, but you don't have a God to give the glory to? Well, you, you make up a God to give the glory to, right? So, so they worship nature itself, or we end up worshiping the scientific method itself in terms of what it can allow us to do in, in terms of what we can get from nature, the continuation of life, uh, you know, more comforts for everyday living, whatever, right? But a lot of people just simply worship nature. Now, they wouldn't say that, and it's not in like this sort of ancient animistic way, but nevertheless, the language is the language of worship. And so just the other day, I was reading this science article, I think it was on like Science Daily, but it was on evolution, and, and I don't want to nerd out on this, but convergent evolution, like that a squid and a human can both develop like super complex camera eyes, right? That's always been a problem for macroevolution. Like, how does that happen? Or flight in insects, bats, and birds, all developing in different ways at, you know, different, different times through evolutionary processes. So this guy's talking about this, and he's a huge, huge advocate of macroevolutionary theory. Uh, and, but he keeps referring to evolution in personal terms. So instead of seeing this as a problem for his theory of, of evolution, he embraces it as this amazing thing that evolution has done. And he talks about evolution, these blind, mindless, impersonal evolutionary processes, as if it was a person. Like, it, he speaks of it in personal terms. How, how evolution had come up with these ingenious solutions in all these different ways to these problems it faced. And how it had fooled the smartest scientists and biologists for more than a century. And so, basically, you could see that this man was worshiping his theory of evolution to which he had devoted his life and his career. It's the language of worship. And, and just like both modern scientists and ancient pagans, we were all created to worship. We all have that tendency to want to worship, to want to express gratitude, to want to identify the source of the awe-inspiring things that we come across. But sin, folks, our fallen nature, sin leads us, or I should say it misleads us, into worshiping aspects of creation rather than the Creator Himself. From the very beginning, from the garden, we see this tendency, and this is what sin does. It produces a false worship that worships the creation instead of the Creator. So how are you and I engaged in false worship? We've got to take this home and live with it, right? We, we, we have to apply this personally. How are you and I engaged in false worship this morning? What kinds of things are we trying to fit into that God-shaped hole in our souls? What are we trying to cram into there? What false idols are we setting up in place of the one true living God in our lives? It's, it could be a million things. You're going to have to noodle on this yourself. But could it be a job or a career? Are we working to glorify God as we should? Or are we defining uh, ourselves by the search for significance in our vocational career? Or, or we're seeking a, a sense of success so that we can feel successful and have some self-worth? Or are we seeking financial security from our job as though that's the God that's going to provide what we need? Is it, is it wealth? Are we content in Christ? Whatever he's, wherever he has us in terms of wealth and standard of living? Or are we defining contentment by a certain standard of living? 
Are we defining our contentment, our ability to be satisfied by a certain number in our bank account? Is it a spouse? I mean, again, these can be good things that we turn into idols and false gods. Is it a spouse? Whether we have one or we want one, are we accepting marriage or singleness as a gift from God? Which they are both described as a gift from God in the New Testament in different ways, but they're both described as gifts from God. Or are we looking to a mere mortal to make us feel loved and valued or to fully satisfy our desires in this life? Is it children? Again, wonderful, blessing, gift from God, a full quiver as the Old Testament talks about. Are we stepping into parenting as a God-given stewardship to raise up the next generation of Christ followers, of, of godly young men and women? Or are we seeking validation in the eyes of our children? Or are we seeking validation in the eyes of the people watching us raise our children in our community? Is it drugs or alcohol? This is a a, a huge false god in our culture. Why do we turn to drugs and alcohol? Why do we worship what we think drugs and alcohol can provide for us? Do we just need something to take the edge off every day? Is that where we're at? Is it recreation? Do we just need some time to escape and entertain ourselves constantly? Whatever that recreational thing is that we're worshiping. Guys, everything, and I want to be sure you don't miss this, even and especially the good things that God blesses us with, they too can become objects of false worship. And we have to be on guard against that. Our only hope in facing this tendency toward false worship is to take Paul's advice in our passage, the same advice he gives to these pagan worshipers. It's to turn, it's to repent, to turn from these false gods and to turn toward the one true living God. And of course, guys, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the good news that we can do just that. Not by our own strength, not by our own effort, not by our own righteousness or ability or or innate holiness, but the gospel of Jesus Christ says that, that Christ died for our sin on the cross so that we could be Repentance, so that we could turn from our dead works and in new life, empowered by the Holy Spirit, turn towards God in faith and enjoy a reconciled relationship with our Creator. That's the good news of the gospel. And again, Paul would have gotten there and probably had before this in that town had he not been cut short. It's the good news because God has demonstrated His love for us proactively, not in response to anything we've done, but he's demonstrated his love for us by sending his one and only begotten son to die for us so that we can be forgiven of our false worship. All the false worship that happened before we knew Christ and all the false worship that wiggles its way into our lives since we came to faith in Christ. We can constantly go back and leave that at the cross, knowing that Christ has died for that and enjoy that reconciled relationship with the one true living God by his grace through faith in his son. So in the first part of our passage, we got this glimpse into the nature of false worship. In the second part, we're going to see characteristics of false worshipers. So let's look at who are the people, how are the people that are engaged in false worship? We, we see that they can be resistant to change, that they can be reactionary when challenged about their beliefs or forms of worship. And yet, even though they can be resistant reactionary, They are yet redeemable by God's grace. Don't miss that last one. 
So false worshipers can certainly be resistant to change. We, we know this. But look at how Paul describes this resistance of the pagans in Lystra to Paul's preaching in verse 18. It's like Paul gets cut off in the middle of this speech on why you shouldn't worship us. And it says, And even by saying these things, only with difficulty did they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. You see, these pagans, they didn't want to change their old forms of worship, their traditions and their practices. They they simply wanted to assimilate this experience they had with Paul and his miraculous healing of the paralyzed man. They wanted to somehow assimilate that into their traditional beliefs and practices. And the way they did that is just calling Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes. So it could just fit right in with their traditional mythologies. So, false worshipers can be resistant to change. False worshipers can also be reactionary when challenged. In verse 19, we see two different groups who are reacting as false worshipers. They are reactionary. So look at these two groups in verse 19. It says, so he's having trouble like keeping them from sacrificing to them. And then it says, but Jews... These are unbelieving Jews that didn't respond to Christ, came from Antioch, that's Pisidian Antioch in modern-day Turkey, uh, about 100 miles northwest of where they are right now. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking that he was dead. So, So these Jews are reacting... And remember, Paul and Barnabas are Jewish too, right? These are unbelieving Jews that did not respond to the good news of the Jewish Messiah when when Paul and Barnabas were sharing the gospel in in their home cities. And so they were reacting to what they considered to be a threat to their traditional Jewish beliefs and practices, to the way they interpreted the Torah, the law and the prophets, to their oral traditions and expectations that came out of those traditions. And so... They are reacting to this perceived threat, especially as they see their their friends from the synagogue turning to Christ and accepting him as their Messiah. So Paul had already led a lot of Jews to Jesus back in Antioch and Iconium. And so these men, they came all the way from those cities to put an end to Paul once and for all. Going to get rid of him once and for all. And then we've got this group of, of pagan Gentiles who are also reacting to Paul's challenges to their traditions. In fact, this left them highly susceptible to the influence of Paul's Jewish opponents. You ever wonder, like, why are these Jewish people going to the city where there's not a synagogue, there's really not any Jewish people to speak of, and they're somehow, like, partnering up with the the Gentiles in the city, and, and they're influencing them to basically attack Paul? And so you think about this, they're not trying to win these pagan Gentiles over to Judaism. They're basically exacerbating the scene and, and influencing them because these, this crowd, this mob, is highly susceptible to influence. I'm sure what they did is say, guys, this isn't Zeus and, and Hermes. They're blaspheming your gods. You've got a temple of Zeus right here. Priest of Zeus. They're blaspheming Zeus, the father of the gods. What are you going to do about it? And so they become susceptible. And so these men who were, who were uh, in this crowd, their perception of Paul changes so much that they went from wanting to worship him and sacrifice to him to wanting to murder him outside the city gates in front of the temple of Zeus. 
So these false worshipers, just like any false worshipers in the world, including you and I, can be resistant to change and can be reactionary when challenged as to our forms of worship, our traditions, and how we want things to be. And yet, and this is the beautiful part, and yet by God's grace, they are redeemable. Any false worshiper that's ever existed is not outside God's sovereignty, is not outside God's grace. They are redeemable. And that's why Paul was in Lystra in the first place. He knew it was full of false worshipers, but he was there to help redeem them from their false worship so that they could be true worshipers through Christ. And that's why even after he's stoned and left for dead, I don't think he actually died and resuscitated. Some people think that, but I think the way it's phrased in here, it seems like they just thought he was dead, so they stopped throwing rocks at him and just went back into the city gates. All right? And so... So even after that, getting bludgeoned almost to death by rocks, by these people, he walks right, he pops up, which we begin this passage and end the passage with someone on the ground popping back up, and he goes right back into the city full of people that just threw rocks at his face. And then the next day, to avoid the continued threat, he and Barnabas leave for Derby, which is, you know, several miles down the road. It's the next, it's the easternmost village that they're going to go to on this missionary journey. And so get, get this, and Kevin's going to talk about this next week. <coughs> they go to Derby, but do they take the easy route home through Paul's hometown? No, where do they go? They turn back and take the harder road through Lystra, where he was stoned almost to death, and through Iconium and Pisidian Antioch, where all these guys came from to stone him to death. That's their return route. But the reason Paul takes that route, the reason he comes back to Lystra, and he comes back on his second missionary journey too, that's where he picks up Timothy. But the reason he does that is because he knows that by God's grace, a false worshiper is redeemable through the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him. Look at how our passage ends in verse 20 and 21. It says, But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made a good number of disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. So the fact, I mean, think about this. I missed this the first, I don't know how many times I read this. But who was standing around him when he got stoned almost to death? It's the the disciples. He had been there long enough to already have made disciples in Lystra from these pagan worshipers. And so they're standing around Paul's battered body because they had come to faith in Christ and they become followers of Christ. And one of those disciples was probably, I would say undoubtedly, a young man by the name of Timothy, whose mother was Jewish, whose father was a Greek Gentile, who was raised in the Hebrew scriptures by his mom and his grandma. I, I can almost assure you that he was one of the ones standing around watching the courage the spirit-empowered courage of Paul as he got back up on his feet and walked back into Lystra and left, but only to return several more times. And so false worshipers were being redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. That's my point. Timothy went on to become Paul's greatest spiritual protege from this little rural podunk town of Lystra. False worshipers can resist change and they can react to challenges 
but they can also become Christians by God's grace. True worship means worshiping God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We talk about praying to God the Father in Christ by the Spirit or through the Spirit. And that's how worship works. Worship produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You know, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the self-control. You know all these things that we wish we had more of, the fruit of the Spirit? It's produced by true worship in our lives. But false worship can only produce the works of the flesh. You will never bear the fruit of joy as a result of false worship, as a result of worshiping something else besides the one true living God. And Paul actually, before he lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, he lists the works of the flesh to contrast the fruit of the Spirit. And look, look at the things he lists here. Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's not an exhaustive list. But when we are false worshipers, when we are worshiping falsely, something else besides God, when we get squeezed, this is the stuff that comes out of our lives, not the fruit of the Spirit. And, and here, I want you to see this as a blessing. When we see the works of the flesh in our lives, these things I just read to you, it should be like a check engine light on our lives, on our hearts, notifying us that something is wonky, something is wrong with our worship, that we're worshiping as we ought not to. And maybe we're not plotting to manipulate a, a, a pagan mob to murder a Christian evangelist, but that's what's squeezed out of them as a result of their false worship that left them susceptible to the mob, the murderous mob mentality. So maybe that's not happening, but guys, there are plenty of other ways that false worship is going to affect your life and my life when we get squeezed, especially. And I'll give you an example from my own family. I'm not picking on her because she's not here today, but Stacy gave me permission to share this. Uh, a while back, uh, fairly recently, and for quite a while, Stacy was experiencing these outbursts of anger and frustration. <clears throat> she would just kind of erupt in anger, and, and it was really bothersome to her. She was really worried about it, and, and she prayed a lot, and she went to God's Word, and she sought wise counsel on these things. And eventually, God opened her eyes to this really interesting, like, aha moment. God opened Stacy's eyes to the fact that she was actually worshiping a false god of what she calls calm waters. She was worshiping the false god of calm waters. In other words, she felt like if she just had calm, flat waters in life, then she could experience peace, then she could experience contentment, then she could experience joy in this life if she could just get to that place of calm waters. And, and instead of <clears throat> going to God for peace and joy and contentment, regardless of the circumstances, instead of going to God for these things, she was expecting them to come from her circumstances. If I can just get my circumstances to be just so, then I can have contentment, I can have joy, I can have peace, I can enjoy all these things God wants me to enjoy. She didn't realize she was worshiping not God who provides those things, worshiping the circumstances as though they could. It was a false god. So every time something started splashing around in our life and making waves, and that something was usually a someone, 
a little someone. She responded with these outbursts of anger because the object of her worship was being threatened. You're keeping me from getting what I am going to get from my circumstances. If you would only just stop and just let the waters calm down, then I could be content. And you're robbing that. You know, the truth is we all do this. I don't have to convince you of that. I like how Tim Keller explains this in a really good book called Counterfeit Gods. And this is, I had like 15 quotes of his in the sermon, but I just, I cut it down to one. He said this, he said, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol. Did you hear that? When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping, whether you know it or not. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Therefore, if you find that despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without? It may be, he writes, that until some inordinate desire is identified and confronted, you will not be able to master your anger. So what would you consider today in your life an absolute requirement for your happiness or self-worth or whatever, joy, contentment, hope, happiness, whatever, satisfaction? Whatever that thing is, it has become an idol. And the only way to deal with an idol is to repent and to turn from that unworthy thing. Not that it's not a good thing, but it is ultimately unworthy of our worship. To turn from that unworthy thing to the only one worthy of our worship, the one true God. And I'll just end with this. In Romans 1, Paul is talking about Gentiles. And in Romans 1, Paul famously calls out Gentiles who should have known about the one true God simply from seeing his power and his wisdom, his majesty in creation. But instead of acknowledging their creator, instead they sank into false forms of worship that were focused on created things that were ultimately unworthy of their worship. And so Paul writes this in chapter 1, starting in verse 21. He says, For they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Folks, these words apply to us just as well today. And, and it's my prayer for us, it's my prayer for Wayside and our church family that God would give us wisdom to identify our idols, to identify where we're trying to squeeze something into that God-shaped hole in our life. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I pray that God would give us wisdom to know our idols. And they probably aren't wooden images of animals. Okay. I mean, maybe they are, but they're probably not. Our idols might look like a light blue thumb icon on our Facebook page or a little small red heart icon above our Instagram post. 
or, or perhaps a certain kind of chrome emblem on our vehicle. Maybe it is an animal, a Ferrari horse or something, right? Or a certain title or acronym in the subject line of our emails or on our business cards. Or seeing a certain number of digits on our account balance in the bank. Or having certain names and numbers of certain people in our phone contacts. Or having well-behaved children that are so impressive. Or, Or a worthy spouse who's worthy of our love and affection. Or anything else that we're tempted to turn to for satisfaction, security, or self-worth, or any of the other things we've talked about today. Those things are our idols. And we can't afford not to cast them down and turn back to the one true living God. Next week, Kevin is going to help us uh, better understand why Paul chooses to take that harder road by heading back to all these cities where he faced persecution on this first missionary journey. And he's going to dive into that next week.